welcome to the history of Vikings. In 2017, DNA tests confirmed that the remains of a Viking warrior unearthed in a prestigious grave in Birka, Sweden, were that of a woman. Through archaeology, history, and literature, today's guest uses this Birka warrior to present the case that Viking women had more power and influence than medieval historians previously thought. Joining me to discuss the Birka warrior and female agency during the Viking Age generally is Nancy Marie Brown. Nancy has studied Icelandic literature and culture since 1978 and was formerly the editor of the award-winning magazine Research Penn State. She's the author of several books, including that on today's topic of conversation, The Real Valkyrie, The Hidden History of Viking Warrior Women, as well as Ivory Vikings, The Mystery of the Most Famous Chessmen in the World and the Women Who Made Them, and Song of the Vikings, Snorri and the Making of Norse Myths. Today's episode is sponsored by Norse Tradesmen, a company that provides premium Norse replicas, such as genuine drinking horns and functional weapons, carefully handcrafted using only the finest natural materials. Norse Tradesmen offers a vast selection of historical replicas, including their bearded battle axe, battle-ready swords, genuine oxhorn tankards, drinking horns, and much more, all drawn from historical sources rooted in Viking history and mythology. And now, get your very own customized horn tankard. Submit your own text to be engraved by hand right here in the USA by Norse Tradesman's in-house Norse historian. Tankards and ale horns linked to the Norse traditions of family and fellowship can be purchased and shipped within one day via their website, norsetradesman.com. Be sure to follow the link in the description of this episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Nancy Marie Brown. Nancy Marie Brown, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's nice to be here again, Noah. It's very nice to have you back on the podcast, Nancy. The interview that we did in 2020 was on your book, The Far Traveler, Voyages of a Viking Woman. And listeners of this podcast have eagerly awaited the book that you hinted at in that interview titled The Real Valkyrie, The Hidden History of Viking Warrior Women. So excited about this book in a similar vein, dealing with Viking women as your book, The Far Traveler, Voyages of a Viking Woman. So very excited to have you on the show today. Well, what a book. I have my copy here with me on my desk and listeners can pick up a copy via the link in the description of this episode. But Nancy, this book deals with the Burka burial. In 2017, DNA tests revealed to the collective shock of many scholars that a Viking warrior in a high-status grave in Birka, Sweden, was actually a woman. That is the sort of setting the stage for your book. Tell us, you've been doing the research on this, this topic that sent shockwaves across the scholarly community. When did you first pounce on this topic? Was it right in 
2017 when the results revealed, you know, very shocking evidence? Actually, I was ahead of the results. I, I got the idea of, of wanting to look at Valkyries and the, the concept of women warriors in the Viking Age in 2014 or 2015. It was uh, when I was working on my book, Ivory Vikings. And there's a chapter in that book about the history of chess and when the chess queen came onto the board. I wondered, and lots of people have wondered, why did the queen catch on so quickly in 10th century Europe when the bishop, who was introduced at about the same time, took a lot longer to become standard on the board? The history of chess tells us that in the Arabic world, where chess came from before it came into Europe, that piece was a male vizier. But when it appeared in Europe, it was a queen. And so I, I was musing in Ivory Vikings about, well, maybe it had to do with these very impressive, powerful queens that uh, were ruling in the 10th century, one of them being Gunhild, mother of kings, uh, queen of Norway. And another idea that I, I played with in, in that chapter of Ivory Vikings was maybe it had something to do with the Valkyries and the, the shield mates that uh, occur so many times in Viking poetry and Icelandic sagas. And so I decided I wanted to look at this question of Valkyries and, and understand, are they just mythological? Are, were there women warriors? Could the Valkyries be real? And I was reading uh, books by Neil Price of the University of Uppsala, who's very well known in, in Viking studies, and decided I wanted to ask him for his advice on how I could include archaeology in this question. I, I, I know the sagas and, and the poetry quite well, and I know how to find the resources. But it's like, well, I'd really like to study a warrior grave in depth and learn how do archaeologists tell if it's a male or a female? So I'm, I'm interested in the science. And so I met Neil at a conference in Orlando, Florida in uh, January 2016. And I you know, made an appointment to you know, spend some time with him. And I, I described for him this, this project that I was thinking of doing. And I said, can you recommend a grave that I could study? And it would be really great if this was the burial of a woman with weapons. And it would even be, you know, the icing on the cake if the archaeologist was also female, the head archaeologist. And he got this really funny expression on his face. And he looks at me and he says, I can't talk about that yet. And it turns out that he had been working on this study of Birka Grave BJ581 and, and nobody was supposed to know about it. It was in peer review at that time. And so he kind of gave me a little heads up saying, you know, watch for something that's going to come out in maybe the next year that's really going to change the conversation. And he wouldn't even tell me that it was his own work. He was being really hush-hush about it. And I asked a few other people, uh, what grave do you think this is? And I never really got an answer until September 2017 when this paper came out a female Viking warrior confirmed by genomics. And I said, aha, that's the one. So I immediately contacted my agent and I said, I need to jump on this and uh, put together a proposal. And we, we shopped it around and it turned out the agent who, uh, I mean, the editor who had worked with me on Ivory Vikings was able to, to get the, um, the, the book for me. So I started writing it well, I'd started collecting material 
you know, a year before the paper came out. And so as soon as it came out, I was really into it and, you know, learning everything I could and making an appointment to, to go to Sweden and talk to the researchers. And I think what really surprised me, and it surprised them too, was that there was this really strong negative backlash, you know, from this paper of, of people not believing the science, of thinking that, oh, uh, you must have tested the wrong bones, or your DNA was corrupted, or, you know, something else. And, and so, two years later, the researchers published another paper, 2019, where they went into a whole lot more detail about you know, why this burial has always been considered you know, a warrior grave and what, you know, what the definition of a warrior grave is and how we've, we've interpreted uh, graves in the Viking Age, you know, from the Viking Age over time. And you know, maybe, maybe we need to rethink that, but uh, obviously just changing the sex of this grave did not change how it had been looked at for the last hundred years. By the time that paper came out, I was pretty much done with the first draft of my book. So I was, I was kind of uh, having anxiety attacks that the the scholars were going to back off of their their uh, you know, their their controversial conclusions. And I was just so happy that they didn't. They they really doubled down on it and said, "No, the science is right. Now we have to discuss how to interpret it." So that's that's pretty much where where my book comes in. That I decided I was going to interpret. Uh, not only the grave, but what do we know about women warriors and women in the Viking Age in terms of let's assume that this warrior is a woman. What was her life like? You know, so we, we go from there. You know, rather than questioning, could a woman be a warrior? Assume this woman is a warrior. What was her life like? So I'm looking at one individual, uh, an exceptional person in the Viking Age. I'm so grateful that you did write The Real Valkyrie, The Hidden History of Viking Warrior Women, Nancy. I'm so thankful for this book, and I've absolutely adored reading it. In the book, you imagine the woman in that burial. You imagine her life intersecting with these wonderful real women, including Queen Gunhild, Mother of Kings, the Viking leader known as the Red Girl, and Queen Olga of Kiev. I believe you call her Hervor in the book. Is that right? And tell us, I mean, you, of course, you are very familiar with the Old Norse literary sources. When you were weaving sort of this heroine's journey, where did you draw your inspiration? Well, I started with the archaeology, and that gave me the basic chronology. So if you look at this grave, BJ581, there was a bit of a coin in it that can be dated to 913 to 980. So that's, you know, pretty much the entire 10th century. Now the placement of the grave implies that it was there before the warrior's hall in Birka burned down. And and the archaeologists think that happened about 965. The chemistry of the teeth in the grave say that the woman was between 30 and 40 years old when she died. So this gives me a range of, you know, if we say she may have died around 965 and she was 30 to 40, I say she was born around 930. The chemistry of the teeth also tells us some other interesting things about her. She was not a native of Birka. She came from somewhere in southern Sweden or Norway. She went west 
maybe even as far as the British Isles before she was eight. And she didn't arrive in Birka until she was older than 16. So she traveled as a child. Uh, the weapons and the clothing in her grave link her to the East Way, which is the Viking trade route through Russia and Ukraine to Constantinople and possibly even, you know, all the way to the Silk Road. So she is linked, you know, by this grave from southern Sweden or Norway, possibly west to the British Isles and east all the way to Kiev. So then I started looking at histories of the Vikings and sagas uh, and poetry from Iceland. Now, all of our histories, you know, from the Viking point of view, are, are things like uh, Snorri Sturluson's Hames Kringla, History of the Kings of Norway, uh, Saxo Grammaticus, History of the Danes. These were written down in the 1200s, so you have to you know, look at them with, you know, take them with a grain of salt. The sagas also were written down in the 1200s. The poetry we can't date often. Some of it is Viking Age, some of it is later. We can't really tell. So I was looking in these uh, sources for things that clearly were pre Christian because the pagan world or the, the Viking world became Christian around the year 1000. So that's a good 40, 35 to 40 years after this, this woman died. So she was not as um, in the Christian world. And I was looking, looking for events or stories or people that she might have intersected with. And what I found was if I, you know, I, I pretty much just, you know, threw a dart on the map trying to decide where she might have been born. I'm looking at, you know, the Viking world from the point of view of a woman warrior, what would be the best place for her to be born? And given I have all of southern Sweden and Norway to, to look at, I decided it would be Westfold, uh, Vestfold in, in Norway, where the Oseberg ship was found. And that's 100 years before her birth. But these you know, huge grave mounds with the ship you know, buried underneath it, in Oseberg, you have two women buried in the most lavish Viking grave ever uncovered. There was also the Gokstad ship, which was buried in around 900, so that's only 30 years before her birth, quite close by. So people who uh, buried the chieftain in the Gokstad ship would have known that there were people buried in the Osberg Mound also, and probably would have known the story of the women who were buried there uh, much, much more than we do in Herber's uh, lifetime. So in order to make this story possible, as you said, I had to give her a name. So I just chose the name Herber because there's some great women warrior characters in a saga known as the Saga of Herber or the Saga of King Hedrick the Wise, if you go with uh, Christopher Tolkien's translation. And the first one of them is this warrior woman who goes and opens her father's grave and gets his sword. And so I, I used that scene that's pretty much just to start out my book. I recreated that scene of her going to to get her father's sword. And then I take her life, I take the life of this skeleton, and uh, having given her a name and having decided where she where she lived and where she grew up, I have her intersect with the other people who were living in these places at the time. And 
Investfold, uh, the area where the Oseberg ship is, about when uh, Hervor was five or eight years old, Eric Bloodaxe and his queen Gunhild, mother of kings, raided and completely destroyed uh, the great hall there, which was near one of the market towns. So I have uh, that be the place where Hervor grew up or was born and have her actually be taken in this raid. And she is fostered by Gunhild, mother of kings, who is, is well known in, in Heimskringla for having fostered other people's children, often her enemies' children. And this allows me to um, talk about what uh, kingship was like and how you know, queens and kings shared power and where Gunhild might have gotten her power from. And also when they are exiled from Norway and go to uh, Orkney Islands, Hervor can go along, which also uh, matches the science. And so she grows up in the Orkney Islands. She goes to York when Eric Bloodax becomes the king of York. She then becomes a warrior woman there and travels with, with Eric's war band to Dublin, where she meets the Red Girl, who also is a historical character. She appears in an Irish chronicle that's known as the War of the Irish with the Foreigners. And she's, she's not like Queen Gunhild. Queen Gunhild is in 11 sagas and several histories, so we know an awful lot of stories about her. She's always the, the villain, but we know a lot about her. The Red Girl is just a name in a list. She is one of 15 or 16 Viking war leaders who are harassing Munster around the middle of the 10th century. So I have to use a little bit of more imagination to create a character out of her. But she allows me to connect the story of this skeleton uh, that I call Hervor with the Viking slave trade, because Dublin was the center of the Viking slave trade in the West. And there was this international network, uh, you know, slave network that went you know, as far as you know, Iceland in one direction and Baghdad in the other. And it's the Viking slave trade that connects Dublin and York to Kalpong, which is the market town near Oseberg, uh, to Birka in Sweden and to Kiev. So this gives me the excuse for uh, this skeleton to actually get to Birka in Sweden where we know she was because she died there, but also to take her farther and get her to Kiev, uh, which is where we think uh, one of the objects in her grave came from, a, a beautiful silver cone that was on the top of her hat when she was buried. Uh, it, it exactly matches a, a silver cone that was found in, in Kiev. So she has this link you know, all the way from one side of the, of the Viking world to the other. So I use fiction in this book. I mean, each chapter starts with historical fiction of this story of Hervor, but then I back up in each chapter and tell you what my sources are. So you can easily tell, you know, where I'm making it up and what facts I'm basing it on. Well, you have written this book in a way that is so engaging, Nancy, and I appreciate that. You started with the archaeology and, of course, your vast knowledge of Old Norse literature to weave this, as I said, wonderful heroine's journey. Well, what about those? 
And forgive this question. I'm sure it comes up and has come up so many times in your writing and research for this book. When somebody might ask something to the effect of, well, these grave goods that we find, and I'll just use the name you've given her, Hervor's grave, what if those were in fact placed there after her death by her family, by her men, for a variety of different reasons? Maybe the weaponry was symbolic that she came from a warrior family and didn't actually denote that she herself was a warrior woman. What do you make of that argument? That's an argument that a lot of people make. And if I agreed with it, I would have written a completely different book. I'm making the opposite argument. I'm arguing that the things found in the grave actually say something about the person there, that they were the objects owned by the person. That is how this grave has always been explained until we found out it was female. If you want to say that the objects in the grave do not belong to the person, then we have to look at all of the Viking graves, male and female, that we have and rethink what we have learned from them. We can't just say that because it's a woman in the grave, it can't be a real warrior. We have to look at all of the weapons graves and say, okay, none of them are warriors. They all come from warrior families. Uh, it, it's not, I don't see it, it's, it's in any way fair just to change the understanding of how we read a grave because it doesn't meet with our prior assumptions about how the world should work. I think that we have, unfortunately, been much too influenced by tradition and history and you know how Viking studies and archaeology started really in the in the Victorian age because these concepts that you know all the men were warriors and all the women were housewives and that if you find a woman with weapons it has to be symbolic in some way it can't be real that's actually an idea that started in about 1837 when uh, the first archaeological studies of Vikings took place. And they decided that, of course, if you found weapons in a grave, that would be cataloged as male. And if you found jewelry in a grave, it would be cataloged as female. And we don't really have great statistics on this. And we certainly don't have statistics that cover the entire Viking world. We find that things are different in different parts of, in different communities within the Viking world. In some places, it was, you know, normal for men to be buried in boats and women in wagons, but in other places it was normal for women to be buried in boats and men to be buried in wagons. And I think what we're finding out is if you look at elite graves from the Viking Age, everyone is different. There's there's not these big overarching patterns that can easily be classified. So we have to think about, you know, are we making assumptions or are we reading, you know, what's there. And I made a very big argument, you know, a very long argument, a 300 page argument that we should understand what's in the grave as being somehow identifying the person there. And in this case, when you look at the weapons and you look at how they are laid out around the body, it's very hard to say that they don't have some connection to this body because these are not symbolic weapons. These are not fancy. 
They're not beautiful. They are killing machines. And there's nothing in that grave that is extraneous to a warrior's life. There's, there's no jewelry. There's no gold. There's, you know, no food even. I suppose you could, no, there is a bowl, but we don't think there was anything in it. So it's not that they just gave this woman a lot of good things. Everything in that grave would have been something that a warrior would have used, including two horses, which is is quite, you know, outstanding. At the beginning of today's show, I introduced our sponsor, Norse Tradesman. If you love the Viking Age as much as I do, go ahead and pay them a visit at norsetradesman.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Norse Tradesman offers an incredible array of Norse-inspired handcrafts, ranging from swords and axes to clothing, pendants, and drinking horns, all rooted in Norse history, mythology, and tradition. Plus, now Norse Tradesman offers custom hand-engraved horn tankards. Submit your own text to be engraved, or even get your initials translated into a Norse bind rune by their in-house Norse linguistics expert, Dr. Cody Dees. The custom mugs make for incredible gifts for the heathens in your life. Imagine everyone in your horde with their very own personalized horn mug. Aside from offering great products, Norse Tradesman is passionate, just like I am on this podcast, about the rich history of medieval Scandinavia. Norse Tradesman's goal is to transport its patrons back to the enchanting times of our ancestors. Their products display the craftsmanship and authenticity of true Norse tradesmen that fashioned goods with incredible attention to detail. All of their craftsmen use traditional techniques to mimic the function and appearance of medieval Norse crafts. But most importantly, They do not forget the values of the culture that inspired the creation of Norse tradesmen. Honor is of the utmost importance with this company, and they certainly do not fail you when it comes to personal attention and customer service. As founder Neil Goldsmith has said, Norse tradesmen will never rest until their allies are pleased. So visit Norse Tradesmen at norsetradesmen.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Lose yourself in the magic of times long past by reliving the Viking Age through handcrafted products from Norse tradesmen. And you mentioned the weapons, for example. For those who haven't yet read your book, Nancy, could you give us some insight as to what sort of life Hervor enjoyed while traveling across the Viking world? Was she participating in raiding and trading and usual Viking activities? Because she was a woman, did that diminish in any way her, I don't want to say appetite for bloodshed, because of course one knows that, you know, medieval Scandinavian raiders lived a more nuanced existence. Tell us if you would, what sort of life she might have enjoyed. Well, I think you have to, again, recalibrate your expectations of the Viking Age. Not every man was bloodthirsty and strong and brave and had the opportunity to be a raider. Certainly not every woman. But in her case, we know from her bones 
that she was about two inches taller than the average height of a man of her time. We know that she was well-fed and well-nourished all her life. She never went through periods of starvation or malnutrition, so she probably was rich or maybe even from a royal family. So she had opportunities that other people would not have had. She, If she could use all of the weapons that were in her grave, she was strong, she was dexterous, she was athletic. I sort of see her as being the kind of woman who today would be an Olympic athlete or a Marine or even somebody who just runs the Boston Marathon. She's a person who wants to push her physical limitations, you know, who wants to try uh, herself, who wants to you know, push against uh, those limits and is not afraid to be beat up, to be tired, to be exhausted. She would much rather do that than sit on a bench and embroider. You have a number of women in the sagas who, who are described this way as they, they would much rather go out and practice with the sword and shield than sit in the house and do their embroidery. It's not to say that every woman would do this, but not every man would, would want to be a Viking raider either. You, you have to remember that. So if she was good enough to have a place on a Viking ship on, in a Viking raid, she earned that place. And she was just as good a fighter as the other members of her Viking band. They're not going to let anybody in the band who is not able to pull their weight. So it's possible that she could be an excellent archer. We know there was you know, arrows in her grave. There must have been a bow, though it disintegrated. She had two horses. So we know that she was, and they were, they were bridled and there was a saddle. So we know she was a rider. She was probably a horse archer, which was something very common, uh, especially in, in Sweden and on the East Way. So she could ride, she could shoot. Um, she could you know, wield a sword, she could wield a spear, you know, if, if she had those things uh, there. The other thing to remember is that the way Vikings fought in general was that they did not uh, try to be fair. Uh, these were not set battles where you had an even number of people either side and you, you know, fought one on one. Your general Viking raid was, you know, a group of, of warriors would come upon an unsuspecting village or market town and, you know, they timed it so that there would not be any uh, defense. They, they tried to avoid that. Their, their best advantage was in surprise and, and lightning raids. And so most of the people that she would be fighting are people who have no training or very little training and who don't have all the weapons that she has and don't have you know, the skill sets and don't have the band backing them up of you know, trained fighters. And if you think of you know, what can a modern you know, mixed martial artist who happens to be a woman do facing a big man who has no training, no skills. Well, she can beat him up. You know, it's, it's quite obvious. So I, I don't think um, there would have been any problem in the Viking Age for her to, uh, to actually fight as well as everybody else in the band. A very insightful perspective 
Nancy. I, I definitely agree with what you just said. There are, of course, many misconceptions about the Viking Age and many misconceptions about women during the Viking Age. You discuss in your book, and you mentioned this earlier, that much of what we have taken as truth about women during the Viking Age is not based on data, but on 19th century Victorian biases. Of course, the famous horned helmet myth is also a uh, convention of the Victorian era. Could you tell us a little bit more about those biases? One knows that Wagner's operas were very popular at the time. The Victorians were aware of their fabled interpretation of, you know, life in medieval Scandinavia. But tell us a little bit more about what those biases, you know, how they translate today. Well, in the Victorian age, uh, women did not have a lot of opportunities. Uh, The upper class women were really told to confine themselves to children, church, and kitchen. And if you remember that the people who were creating these new fields of, of scholarly endeavor, archaeology and Viking studies, were of course men because women were not allowed to be professors and scientists at the time. They saw the Viking Age in terms of their own society. So, of course, when they found uh, evidence of warfare, of weapons, they would assume the men were involved. When they found evidence of textile work or food or, you know, uh, house, housework, you know, cooking and, and that kind of thing, they would assume the women were in charge. One of the most recent studies that I, uh, that I used in this book uh, looked at all of the graves uh, surrounding the town of Kaupang in Norway and cataloged the artifacts uh, in graves that could be sexed. So these, these graves were sexed not by what uh, artifacts were in them, but by other you know, studies of the bones and things like that. And this um, uh, researcher found that if you counted the pots and pans found in graves, you would find pots and pans were more often put in men's graves than in women. Kitchen items were more cooking equipment, were more common in men's graves. So why do you assume that in the Viking Age, women were in charge of the kitchen? Well, that comes back to the Victorian concept of what women should do. Women should stay in the kitchen. So we have to look at, you know, all of these these ideas that we have of you know how the Viking world worked, and we have to assess: is this something that we know based on data, or is this something that we have just learned and that's been in the textbook for hundreds of years? And you know, I had a lot, really hard time doing this because the book that I wrote previously to this about Viking women, the Far Traveler, I describe the society this way as being very. Uh, gender divided. And I describe the women as being, you know, the housewife and in, in charge of this sort of thing. And, and of course, some of them were. I mean, I don't want to belittle the importance of the housewife, but not every woman had to stay home for the society to function. So we have to look at, at you know, in each case, you know, what is possible for a woman to do rather than what did the Victorian people think was appropriate for a woman to do? So again, not every woman was going to be a warrior. But if if an individual has you know a bold and aggressive nature and is you know adventurous and wants to go out and do this, there was really no reason why 
She couldn't if she was physically strong and large enough to do so. Do you think that in light of the journey that you have painted that could have entirely been possible for Hevor in real life during the Viking Age, do you think that a knowledge of what we would call mythology, what would have to her been pre-Christian Scandinavian religion and, you know, a spiritual reality, do you think a knowledge of Valkyries and the goddesses would have in any way inspired her or supported her in her ambition? I'm glad you asked that because I think it is very important. Another one of my books, Song of the Vikings, is a, a biography of Snorri Sturluson, who is the source of most of what we know about Norse mythology. And when I was writing that book, I realized Snorri was a terrible misogynist. His his relationship with his mother was awful. He was terrible to his wife. He was terrible to his mistresses. He was terrible to his daughters. And you look at what does he say about the goddesses in the Prosetta and in, in Heimskringla. And it's obvious that he knew the names of many, many, many goddesses that he tells us nothing about. Now, this is not because the people in you know, Hever's time, the 10th century, did not know stories about these goddesses. The, the names would not have survived 200 years for Snorri to list them if there weren't stories about them, if they weren't important. We just don't know those stories. And then if we look at some of the stories that Snorri does tell us, remember that he was writing you know, in about 1220. If you think of him as a writer, he would have had an audience and a purpose. I mean, that's how writers work. We always choose who are we going to write for and what is our purpose. In his case, he was writing for a 16-year-old king of Norway, and his purpose was to get an important position at court. So he was telling stories that a teenage boy would be interested in. He left out, as I said, all kinds of stories about the goddesses and the ones that he did tell, he sort of skewed them so that they were of interest to a teenage boy. But in spite of that, he does tell us that the goddess Freya was not only um, the goddess of love, a fertility goddess, but she was a battle goddess and she claimed half the dead. She's also described as going into battle, driving a chariot that's drawn by a big cat. Now, in most of the illustrations that you know, accompany modern editions of the mythology, you'll see a big kitty cat. I like to think of it as a mountain lion, a big cat. So you have Freya going into battle in a chariot drawn by a mountain lion. You have Skali, who is the goddess of winter. She's actually a giantess. She goes to Asgard to avenge her father's death, who was a giant killed by the gods. And she's described by Snorri as putting on her armor and gathering her weapons. And she appears you know, at Valhalla dressed as a warrior and demands that someone fight her to uh, avenge her father's death. And the gods refuse. They are afraid to fight her. And so they offer her compensation in, in various forms. But if you think of, you know, growing up in this religion, we can call it, where you have the goddess of winter being a very large warrior woman who the gods are afraid of. There's also the Norse creation myth, which Snorri does tell us, you know, thankfully. And, and that one, I think it's really important to, to examine just to understand the, the 
Viking uh, gender concept. Uh, here's how it goes. In the beginning, there were two logs of driftwood washed up on the beach, and three gods who are wandering along the shore come upon them and decide to create humans. So they carve the logs into the shape of a male and a female, and they bring them to life with blood, breath, and curious minds. Now, if you compare this to the Christian creation myth, in Christianity, Eve is created from Adam's rib, so she's like an afterthought. Adam is, is created in God's image. Eve is created to be a helper and a support to Adam. In the Norse myth, the man, Oscar, and the woman, Embla, are a team. They are uh, created out of the same stuff at the same time by the same gods, and they're both out of wood. And if you look at the two different kinds of woods, we think that you know, Asker is the ash tree and Embla is the elm tree. Ash was used for spear shafts and oars, but elm was used for wheels and hunting bows. So both of these woods have uses in both peace and war. And I think the same was likely true about the men and women of the Viking Age. Their roles in society were decided not by their gender, but by their own individual qualities, their ambition, their ability, their family ties, and their wealth, and of course, their status as free or unfree. Nancy, I love the way that you conceptualize the Viking Age from, I've never heard that before, from the types of wood that in the Norse creation myth, the first beings, Ask and Embla, man and woman, the materials they were made out of to the cats, perhaps not domesticated cats that we would think of here in, you know, the 21st century, but these great cats, these mountain lions, these predatorial animals drawing Freya's carriage. I find that so fascinating and so relevant in an excellent way to consider and think about life from the perspective of a woman during the Viking Age. I love that. So thank you for sharing that with us today. And listeners, please do pick up a copy of The Real Valkyrie, The Hidden History, Viking Warrior Women, Nancy Marie Brown's new book via the link in the description of this episode. The last question I'll ask you today, Nancy, and it's been such a pleasure speaking with you thus far, is tell us about your own journey, if you would, in writing this book. I mean, you alluded to it at the very beginning, but you've had a connection with medieval Scandinavia and the country of Iceland for so long. And when this happened, when the DNA tests were revealed in 2017, did that confirm a notion that you had deep inside held on to for a while? Or did that really just shake your own world and your own understanding of women during the Viking Age? I think it, it really did surprise me. Um, but deep inside, I was expecting it because the, the poem that I used to start the book, Herver's Song, it's also called The Waking of Angantyr, uh, is a poem that is, is preserved for us in the saga of Hervor. And when I first got interested in Icelandic sagas and in, in Norse mythology and in you know, reading Old Norse in college, it was one of the, the first poems that I read and one that really stuck with me because it, it so turned my assumptions and, and the, the assumptions of of the books I was reading, you know, on its head, because suddenly the 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 story in this uh, poem 
is that you have a woman who is the leader of a Viking band, and she goes to an island. She brings her her Viking band to this island in Denmark, and she says, "I want to break open my father's grave and get his sword." And the other members of her Viking band are afraid; they will not get off the boat. So she has to go by herself. She takes the the rowboat that the um, that the Viking ship has, and she paddles to shore. And there she meets a shepherd who is taking his flock home. And she says, "You know, point out to me which grave is my father's." And he says, "You can't stay here. This this whole uh, point of land will will burst into flames as soon as the sun goes down, and the dead will walk. And you know, no one hangs out here. You have to be a fool to stay here." And she says, "I'm not afraid." She says, "I want to know where my father's grave is." So he tells her. She gives him a you know an arm ring of of silver. And she goes to the grave. Now, in the poem, it's all very magical, and you know the grave opens magically, and the the dead rise. And she speaks to her father, and she pretty much browbeats him and convinces him to give her the sword, and she gets it. Um, when I retell this, I say, let's assume, which I do a lot in this book, let's assume that this poem is remembering an actual event. Archaeologists know that most of the grave mounds from the Viking Age were broken into shortly after the person was buried, and things were taken out. So heirlooms were recovered from the graves. We we don't know whether that was a hundred years later, or fifty years later, or ten years later, uh, but this was this happened. So let's assume that this poem is is describing something that really happened. She would have had a shovel. So I describe her as actually digging into the grave, going into the grave, and having this mental conversation with her father and getting the sword. But this this poem, you know, always stuck in my mind as this was an alternate view of women in the Viking Age that I didn't see in the textbooks, that I didn't see in the the scholarly work that I was reading, even up to. 2006, when I, I finished writing The Far Traveler, which is also about an exceptional woman in, in the Viking Age. Now, I didn't read uh, anything about the possibility of women warriors, of the possibility that the Valkyries were real. And then when this study came out in 2017, I just said, aha, of course. Yeah, it was there all the time, but we just didn't see it. That is fascinating, and I love that. Nancy Marie Brown, it's been a pleasure speaking with you again on the podcast. Listeners, as I said, The Real Valkyrie, The Hidden History of Viking Warrior Women is available via the link in the description of this episode. Nancy, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast today. Thanks very much, Noah. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you for listening to The History of Vikings. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't hesitate to get in touch. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Thank you so much again for listening. Join us right here again for another episode.